This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads out there. I, um, with, with everyone, um, I want to acknowledge um, the, the reality of what a- any of these days, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day, of the fact that it can be hard for some of us, some of us uh, dads who may be trying to become dads, um, but it just ha- hasn't happened for us yet. And, and, and for dads who, who've lost their dads recently, or dads who are just doing it tough right now, or, or you may have experienced uh, loss of your dad or not having a dad at all, or still having a strange relationship. So we want to say with you that we want to weep with you on days like this, and we want to rejoice with those who have had good experiences. And like everyone has said, like Seti and Matt and Jerusha, that we always want to point to the reality that there is a perfect and good heavenly father uh, who wants to be your father, who, who uh, wants to call you into his family. And, and we always want to see our own fatherhood in light of that. So with that said, um, we want to weep with those who weep and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. And as we come to the word, um, I want us to pray together. I'm going to read um, Acts 12, and uh, we're in the middle, just, just about, this is a bit of a hinge chapter. Um, I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 12, and then I'm going to pray. We're going to pray together, and then I'm going to preach. Uh, and I need your help uh, to do that. So let me pray. Uh, let me read, then we'll pray, then we'll preach. Let's go. Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible... Uh, It's Acts chapter 12. It'll be behind me on the screen. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now he did not know what was being done by the angel, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were together gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. 
she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us uh, this day. Uh, no day is promised to us, and so we want to come before you in thanks that you have given us yet another day. Whether we realize it or not, we are dependent on every, of every breath on you. You are the giver of life, and so we want to thank you that we are able to be here today. And so, Lord, I pray that you will comfort those who are hurting today and that you will uh, uh, be with those who are rejoicing today and that we would, as a family, Lord, come under your word, hear what your spirit is telling us, and go out as missionaries into the city. May you help me to forget the things that will be unhelpful for your people, but to remember the things that will build them up and would bring those who are far near. We pray all these things in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in the book of Acts, and I wanted to give you a quick recap because this chapter seems a bit disjointed. It is right in the middle of what God has been doing to what God is going to go ahead and continue to do for the rest. So in Acts chapter 1, we hear that the, uh, the, you know, the, the bodily ascension of Jesus. Jesus goes up into heaven and gives this command, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. That's when the Holy Spirit is poured out on people, and 120 believers become 3,000 believers in that one day, and the church is strengthened and experiences community. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, the gospel continues to be proclaimed. People are healed, and opposition against the church begins to grow. Acts chapter 5, we find that deception and strife hits the church from within as Ananias and Sapphira lie, not only to the church, but to the Holy Spirit, about how much they've given. And the apostles are persecuted Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see Stephen, one of the seven, uh, uh, what we call deacons, being stoned and killed. He preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament, 
and is killed for it. He becomes the first martyr of the church. Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes to uh, Samaria and the people through, uh, and, believe, and people believe through Philip. And the Ethiopian eunuch comes to believe through Philip. Acts chapter 9, the great persecutor of the church, Saul, is rescued. In fact, on the way to arrest Christians, he is arrested by Jesus and becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, to those who aren't Jews. In Acts chapter 10, we learn this, that the gospel continues to push racial and ethnic boundaries as Cornelius the Gentile centurion comes to believe with his family. In Acts chapter 11, the gospel is preached, churches are planted, and the darkness is pushed back. And Antioch is the first place where followers of Jesus are called Christians. And it sounds a lot like what we have been trying to partner with God to do in this city. Luke has been recording all along, time after time, people being saved, people being rescued. And all of this is happening around what, what we read in, in, in uh, Acts 1.8, that verse I just read. All of that is concentrated basically around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And Acts chapter 13, what we're going to see is Paul's going to be sent out to the ends of the earth. So what's happening here in Acts chapter 12? What can we learn from what seems to be uh, a bit of a disjointed chapter in the life of the early church? And I think there are three things. I think there are three things that God wants to teach us today. One is the model of the Christian life. Uh, two is the effectiveness of earnest prayer. And three is the reversal, the reversal of the kingdom of God. So as we begin, what do we see? What's, what's, what's the scene that is set? One is this. James is beheaded. He's killed with the sword, and it's a, it's a bit of a throwaway. It just says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, James, the brother of John, was one of Jesus's really close friends. Jesus had 12 disciples and three really close disciples, and James was one of those. And just out of nowhere, what we find is that King Herod, the king of the Jews, kills him. And then he, he, he sort of puts a, a, a poll out. He, he kind of puts out his marketers to feel, to, well, how do people react to that? Go and find out. And they come back and they say, hey, the people really like that. So he goes, okay, well, I will arrest Peter and put him on death row. And what we learn later on is that Peter is rescued. And James, what we need to know about James, James, it's funny that in Matthew 20, there, there's this, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this scene where James and John, brothers, they're called the sons of thunder. People think they're hotheads. And they send their mom to Jesus. And they, they, they say, hey, uh, my sons would like to know if when your kingdom comes, can they sit at your right and at your left hand? Can they be can they be, you know, your right-hand men when your kingdom comes? And in their minds, you have to imagine, what are they thinking that actually is going to look like? And Jesus says, listen, it's not up to me, but just know this. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink in my kingdom? Are you able to withstand that? See, people thought that being a part of Jesus' kingdom, and so often we think in the Christian life that being a Christian means that your life gets easier. And we ask with James and John, can we sit 
right at the right hand of Jesus. We ask those things, ask those things, as if there's pomp and power and recognition and esteem. And we compare James's story with, with Peter's story coming up, which is, which is one of deliverance. And we compare those two and we say, okay, we, we, we don't want James' narrative, but we'll take Peter's. We'll, we'll take the divine deliverance. But the model Christian life needs to incorporate both these things. Martin Luther, over 500 years ago, he contributed a lot to the church. Uh, but one of the things he contributed, I feel, the most was something he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. This is a theology of glory. In simple terms, Carl Truman, uh, Martin Luther through Carl Truman says this, in simple terms, the theologian, the person of glory, assumed that there's a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, well, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, a person, the cross seems like foolishness, a piece of nonsense. And so often we come into the Christian life thinking, well, if I become a Christian, then life will get easier. And we pray prayers like, Lord, your will be done in my life. But are you willing, like James, to say maybe that? Are we going to sign up to that? Or in our heads, we're just thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sign up to this, to this Jesus thing, and, and he's going to deliver me from every earthly and temporal Tribulation and trial. And parents know that's not true. Because you're parents. But a theologian of the cross is this. God achieves his intended purposes, what he wants to do in the world, by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. Listen, God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph apparently over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. So in this story we have a James who is beheaded and a Peter who is on death row who will be delivered. And we need to say both could be God's will for us. And so often we just jump to saying, I will sign up to this if God comes through for me. And as soon as trials come, as soon as pain comes, we bail. We, ba we don't want any of that. And because Peter reminds us, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter uh, 4.12, he says, Beloved, I mean, my children, beloved, the ones that I love, the one that God loves, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, we want Peter's deliverance, but we don't want James' sword. We want Peter's deliverance, but we don't want James' sword. And it's all through the scriptures. I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews really quickly. Book of Hebrews chapter 11. It says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, listen, listen to this, who through faith conquered kingdoms, put that on your mug, enforced justice, 
obtained promises, obtained promises, stop the mouths of lions. I can't stop the mouths of my kids. Quench the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Sign me up. Right? We want that. Yes. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's the fine print I don't want to sign on. See, the Christian life never guarantees us that we will not suffer in this world. In fact, I, I, I would push it to say this, that it's through our own cracks, through our own suffering, that the grace of God pours out into others. It's through our own cracks, our own suffering, our own trials, where in that trial we can say God is enough. Peter, it's funny, right? Peter, what do you catch Peter doing? He was sleeping. He was sleeping. And it's interesting that a couple years before this, Peter was on a boat. Peter was on a boat with his boys and Jesus. And there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And they're worried. I mean, they're, you know, I don't know what they're doing. I've never been sailing. I think I've been on a boat once. I got sick. I'll never do it again. I don't know what happens out there. I'm a land creature. But they're out sailing. They're in the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm happening. And Jesus is sleeping. He's downstairs having a nap. And, and Peter comes to him. I think it was Peter. He comes to him. He goes, don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus, you know, wakes up in a stupor. And he's just like, listen, like, relax. You have little faith. I got this. Be still. Like, what a boss. <laughs> we find this anxious Peter couple years before, and now we, we find this, this Peter who is on death row, who's about to be beheaded after the Passover is done, and he's sleeping. And what, what you, uh, he, I don't know if you've heard this before, but if you find two men in jail, the one sleeping, that's the innocent one. That's the one who doesn't have to worry. That's the one who has such a strength and hope in Christ. That whether he's delivered or whether he's beheaded, he's asleep. Whether he is beheaded or whether he is delivered, he is asleep. And surely, listen, coming into faith, coming to Christ, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scariest thing, which we may not see as the scariest thing, being separated from God forever has been handled. Do you get that? The worst thing that could ever happen to you will never happen to you in Christ. So what do we have to fear? What do I have to fear? What do we have to fear? And what we find is that this hope, this, this, this ability to look at the Christian life as saying, 
Lord, your will be done. Suffering may come. Deliverance may come. And what this does in us, it engenders a prayerfulness. And what we want to look at here is the surprising effectiveness of prayer, of earnest prayer. And this word earnest prayer, when it says that the church was offering earnest prayer to God for him, that's the same word that's used when Jesus, right before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, was praying. I mean, he, th- th- this is fervent. This is crying out. And they were praying to God. What, what they were praying, we don't know. What we can assume they were praying was for deliverance. And then what happens? Just picture this. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And what's your reaction? Right? So, so Peter comes. He's, he's delivered. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But he's delivered. He comes to the house of Mary. <laughs> knocks on the door. Rhoda comes. In her joy, she goes back in the house. She goes, Peter's here. Nah. You're crazy. We, listen, Peter is locked up. He's, he's, you know, he's in, in two chains with two guards right next to him and two sentries at the door. And he has round the clock secure. There's no way. It must, it must, at the very, it must be his angel. It must be his angel. These earnest prayers, prayers, call this little poor girl Rhoda crazy. That God would actually answer their prayers for deliverance? Nah. And they come out and they think he's this angel. And finally they see, oh, no, no, this is Peter. And they realize that their prayers have been answered. There is deliverance. And some of us have tasted that deliverance. Some of us have been praying to have children for years. And it's happened for some of us. And it hasn't happened for others. Some of us have been praying for a spouse, and it has happened for some of us. And for others, it hasn't. Some of us have been praying for a, a job or finances, and it has happened for some of us. And for some of us, it hasn't. And that's why we could never put the Christian life, life in the kingdom of God, into a formula like this. That if you trust Jesus, you'll be exempt from the trials and tribulations of the world. Or you can't say because of the brokenness of the world, we could never expect divine deliverance. In the end, we are promised ultimate and final deliverance from Satan, sin, death, and false self. By the God who is renewing everything in the world. And we are called now to pray. We're called now to offer earnest prayers that we would see that come. And that's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for more and more to see the deliverance of God fleshed out in our life. But as we live in this broken world, we could never think that we are guaranteed it. Until the last day. And finally, I'm going to be quick here. From verse 20 on, the reversal of the kingdom of God. I want, I want to read to you these again because I want, to, I want you to feel the weight of this. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Just listen to that. Hold hold on to that language. His royal robe took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. 
And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Just, just follow the, the narrative, the flow of the story. The story begins with James dead, Peter on death row, and King Herod as a boss, ruling, calling the shots. And it ends with Peter delivered and Herod dead. And what do we learn from this that so often to the naked eye, setbacks like your two leaders being imprisoned, one of them being beheaded, setbacks in the kingdom of God often serve to bring forth the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God to bear on in our lives and in this city. So often we see setbacks in our own lives as negative. You know, we have been, uh, my wife and I, uh, we've been married 10 years, almost 11 now. And in the beginning of our marriage, woo, yeah. I mean, statistically, you know, they say that the 11th and 12th year are the happiest years of marriage. And I can attest that that's, that's true. And um, in the beginning of our marriage, we, we had a, a couple miscarriages. And that was hard for us. And that was a setback. You know, I, I recently, we've been experiencing a lot of uh, health issues uh, for the both of us, for the family. And uh, uh, Catherine now has, uh, she, she's broken her foot, torn a ligament. And something that uh, every single orthopedic surgeon that we've seen said, well, this is just something you're going to have to carry. That's a setback. It's a significant limitation on our lives. And it's been about a year now. And um, I have to say, you know, we've, we felt loved and cared for by you guys and, pr- and prayed for by you guys. And um, it's a significant setback. And for a while, in the beginning, it took a lot of adjustment in the home. It took a lot of adjustment, you know, mobility-wise and things like that. And uh, uh, what, what we're learning now is that these setbacks, these limitations are places where God wants to meet us. There are cracks in our lives in this, this false perceived armor that those are those cracks. That's, that's where God wants to meet us. And that's what we can offer to the world. We don't offer the world a strength that we have. We offer the world our own weakness. And in that weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect. So you may see a ton of setbacks, infertility, job loss, financial pressures. You may see all those things as setbacks. And we pray, we pray with you for deliverance from those things. But do you know, do you have it in your category of thinking, in your theology, that those are the places where God wants to meet you? Is, is that a part of the furniture of your life? Because if it isn't, it needs to be. God wants to meet us in the brokenness and often take that brokenness and this reversal of the kingdom of God and use that for his purposes. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 18 He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the pomp, the prestige, the the perceived importance, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For 
Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I want to go down. But God, verse 27, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Embrace that. Because in the kingdom of God, everything is reversed. See, what sin has done, and what we need to understand, we need to have a healthy theology. We need to have a healthy theology of creation. That creation, bodily form, matter is not inherently evil. God created the world good. And in Deuteronomy 4, there's this beautiful passage that talks about, well, it's hard. It talks about idolatry. It talks about how when we take anything, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, when we take anything and we say that this is the thing that's going to give me my worth, my dignity, my identity, when we say that is the thing that makes me, so if I have it, I'm something, and if I don't have it, I'm nothing, when that is a reality in our lives, Deuteronomy 4 has this picture of creation being inverted. Where everything is upside down, where everything is wrong, where where God should be primary, he's at the bottom of the list. And so when we call us to holiness, to pursue Jesus, to pursue a worldview that is drenched with the scriptures, it feels odd because we've been living upside down our whole lives. Everything around us, everything in our culture tells us to live a certain way. And the Bible, the scriptures, the wisdom of God, even the foolishness of God, is putting things to right. And God does things weird. A God who, in Psalm 33, says, opens up his mouth and stars come out. I want to do a little project. Can you join me? In a couple seconds, I'm, I'm going to count one, two, three, and I want everyone to just say light. You got me? You with me? Good. One, two, three. Light. Nothing happened. <laughs> and yet, what we, find, we find a picture of a God who says, let there be light, and light happens. And that God became this. Not that. This. You see, I can't even. This. There you go. I can't even do it. And that God became this. A picture of vulnerability. A picture of weakness. You know, a picture of, of reality. Of something. A baby that needed to become a refugee just to save his life. Weakness. Is that part of who we are? Because, listen, God created the world good, and in our rebellion and in our sin, we have thwarted everything in this world. But he became 
man, he became part of us. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we run away from suffering. In fact, it often means that we feel it more acutely because we are part of a God who did not run from suffering, but who became suffering for us and experienced it for you on the cross. So I invite you now. I invite you to remember who he is. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of Luke about the kingdom of God. Look, just, just listen to this. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. He says this. Jesus is going up on a mountain and he's going to preach. And this is, this is what the creator God says to us about the world. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of me, the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets, but woe to you who are rich." For you have already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers did the same to the false prophets. The kingdom of God, life in the kingdom of God is one where God is setting things right. And the things that the world tells us, in fact, are turned on their heads. We would say, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the happy. Blessed are those who are spoken well of. Not in the kingdom of God. And I invite you, I invite you to count the cost, but I invite you to enter into this beautiful relationship with a God who has come to set the world straight. Because what we've seen here in Acts chapter 12 is that whatever is going to come up against the church, nothing Nothing is going to hold back this gospel from going out into the nations. Nothing is going to stop God's plan. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. So that means, struggling Christian, that nothing can stop God from forming Christ in you. And nothing can stop you from coming to Christ now. So I invite you. I invite you, if you don't know Jesus in this way, I invite you to come. There's going to be a prayer team in the back. There's, we're going to celebrate now as we sing together. We're going to celebrate as we take bread and juice as a symbol of what Christ has done on the cross. That little baby who grew up, that little baby who grew up, lived the life that you and I could never live, died the death that you and I deserve to experience and offers us instead new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for who you are for us in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you have not left us as orphans, but you have called us into your family. We thank you that we are a part of the continuation of the book of Acts. The book of Acts doesn't end, but we continue your work, Lord. And we ask now 
I ask now, Holy Spirit, that those who are far away from you would become part of this story, that they would be swept in into this narrative of God, of the God who didn't stay far but who came near, who experienced our suffering, who experienced our shame, who lived a life that we could never hope to even think of living and died a death so horrendous in our place and experienced separation so that we will never have to experience separation from our good and holy and loving Father. So for all these things, Lord, we praise you. And as we sing, may we sing from our hearts. As we eat, may we remember the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken for us and spilt and shed for us. And may we go out remembering who we are, that we are part of the story of God. Before we're a part of anything, may that be, Holy Spirit now, the story we live by. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.